Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Michael Bernstein of Code Climate. How are you doing, Michael? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing great. So I want to start off talking about code quality since Code Climate is this application that intends to help you keep code quality in check. So can you tell me what do you think makes for high quality code? That's a very good question. It's broad. Uh, and obviously, though everything that I'm going to say about all of my answers are 100% correct and irrefutable. Uh, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about it. And of course, it's sort of my day job to think about code quality. And I help sell a product that promises to help make the quality of your code better, right? So people often ask me this question. I think that it's an interesting question for a lot of reasons. But I think to answer your question, code that is of high quality is code that has certain properties. One of those properties is that it's easy to read and to digest as a consumer of the code. So it's often said about code that uh, it's read more often than it is written. Uh, and so by that token, code that's of high quality uh, should be code that's easy to understand when you read it. Code that is of high quality should also be maintainable and easy to change. Uh, so easy to read, easy to change, easy to reason about. Those are the things that I think make code uh, high quality. Okay, that makes sense. So what do we mean by easy to read then? I, I was under the impression that software developers are spending most of their time pounding away on a keyboard. Is that not accurate? <laughs> that is accurate. And I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive with what I said. But to clarify, code that is easy to read is code where that idea is something that the person who's writing it is thinking about when they're writing the code. So developers have a reputation for wanting to appear very clever with the code that they write. So I say that code that is of high quality should be code that's easy to read because your code isn't quality just because it runs as quickly as possible or because it is written in the most compact, clever way possible. Since code is primarily a tool, I mean, there's a couple ways of looking at it, right? What you're saying is right. People spend their time writing code. So probably the way they write it should be just as important as the way that it's read, right? But the reality is the computer doesn't care how your code is written, you know, as long as it's syntactically correct. And as long as, you know, it doesn't make something blow up or hang forever or whatever, it doesn't really matter. So your computer will tend not to distinguish between code that uh, is written in a way that is kind of slapdash and thrown together and code that is written in a very well-reasoned and thought-out way. Though your code is executed by a computer, right? Code is equal parts communication for other human beings as it is for communication with computers, right? Especially if you care about or think a lot about what I do, which is how teams of developers work together, right? So a lot of the calculus of what you might consider quality code changes with the kind of people that are writing it or the circumstances. So you don't need to scrutinize the scripts that you write for fun or the little programs that you hack on on the side with the same level of scrutiny as you would code that you're writing for a team or a product for your day job. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So 
if developers are spending a lot of time reading code then, and you're saying that we need to ensure that code is not overly clever, can we explain what that means a little bit? I mean, what does like an overly clever piece of code look like? An overly clever piece of code is purposefully obfuscated from the point of view of the person writing it. So oftentimes in in many programming languages, there are multiple ways to solve the same problem, right? So an example might be an algorithm like, to take a famous example, a famously overused example, let's say Fibonacci's algorithm, right? There are ways to write Fibonacci, there are ways to write algorithms to compute the Fibonacci numerals that are uh, recursive, and then there are uh, ways of writing that that are non-recursive. Right? Uh, the recursive version is a version where uh, you know some decisions are made in the body of the function, and then under certain circumstances, the function calls itself. Right? And that can be a very challenging thing for especially uh, beginning programmers, to understand. So uh, if you had the recursive and non-recursive versions of Fibonacci side by side, uh, one might perform better or worse in a context of a certain runtime, but typically the non-recursive version uh, will be considered somewhat easier to understand. I mean, the reality is, like, code that is written to be clever and compact is typically pretty easy to identify, right? It's like you look at it and... You know, you have to do a lot of unpacking per line of code. Certain programming languages, like Perl, famously, for example, is a programming language where there's a culture around making these very tiny programs uh, where variables are one letter, where a lot of symbols are used in places of names. Uh, And on the other side of the spectrum, you have a language like Ruby, where the programmers of that programming language try to make identifiers as uh, self-explanatory as possible. You know, you can add a question mark at the end of a method name in Ruby in order to give it a more sort of, so to speak, natural feel. So code that is written in an overly compact way for the sake of being overly compact is uh, clever. And code that is written in a way where... Like you might be writing more lines of code, but it's easier to understand that would be code that is less clever. So that's what I mean by that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So what is the danger here then? Is it that I'm going to come back to this code six months later, or maybe Venkat is able to come back to this and understand what it is that I wrote easily? Is that what we're we're aiming for? Precisely, yes. So, you know, if you have a team of developers there's a mandate that you write code in a way that is as easy to explain, as easy to understand as possible. Easy to explain as well, but easy to understand. That's absolutely imperative. If you don't think about the fact that other people are going to be consuming your code when you're writing it, then you will tend to just kind of do it however you want or in a way that's not necessarily as comprehensible as possible. Okay, and you also mentioned talking about the stylistic choices of Ruby developers over Perl developers, for example. And you said that the Ruby developers like to use these uh, naming conventions that are a little bit more explicit. Is this a way of having code document itself? That's an idea, yeah, that, uh, you know, if you have identifiers in your code that are as close to the English language explanation of it as possible that you have so-called self-documenting code. 
I'm a believer in documentation. And the problem with documentation is that it's very high bandwidth and it's very easy for it to become out of sync with the actual implementation. So uh, by all accounts, it's more work to actually write documentation. And that's work on top of people that write code in a way that's as clear as possible. But I really feel that uh, in my personal experience, when developers take the time to clearly document the code that they're writing, that it's just better all around, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me, writing is a tool that I use to help clarify my own thoughts about something. So even if I'm working on code that's very well tested, I still prefer to have documentation present to give context, right? Because that's where the biggest challenges I think uh, come up as a software developer is, you know, the, that interface between the programming language you're writing and the domain that you're programming for. And often, you know, you need to have some explanations in your code that are external to the actual code itself. And that's why documentation is crucial. So I'm less of a believer in this idea of self-documenting code as I am in the fact that, you know, code should be written as explicitly and clearly as possible and documentation should be there to support that. And there are a variety of other technologies that can be applied to make these things kind of easier, right? Like strong statically typed programming languages, for example, often rely on the type signature of a function to tell you what it does. But I still think in those cases that documentation is is helpful, if not necessary. So you mentioned previously that high-quality code is code that's easy to read and understand. When do developers find themselves reading code? When does this happen? Uh, This happens uh, constantly. Um, Not only is code read more often than it is written, but developers spend more time consuming code than they spend writing it. Um, So if you're on a team of software developers, if you're an open source contributor, if you just want to understand the code that you're including in your program through a library, uh, you're kind of always reading code. That code literacy is a crucial component of being an excellent software developer. You know, there's a lot to be said for people that spend a lot of their time trying to do that well and understand how it works. So all the time, I, I would say. So why is that? Why are people spending more time reading code than writing it? Just because that's sort of the nature of how software works when you are working with a group of other individuals, right? I mean, you, we haven't yet gotten to the point where programming languages and software is so modular that you just kind of like write in a vacuum when you're adding a feature to an application, right? So you're always you know, you're more often than not adding more code to an existing file or module or class in a program than you are when you are are, um, starting a new one, right? So you're more often editing something someone else started than you are starting something on your own. And that's, of course, a generalization. But I would say that the overwhelming majority of people that have jobs as software developers spend time doing that kind of work. And it's sort of like why it's important for people that are, you know, laying bricks in a building need to kind of know the general plan of the building that they're working on, right? You don't just kind of show up and 
start throwing bricks all over the place. You need to know exactly what came before you, how things are going, what the progress is like. You need to have a thorough understanding of the structure that you're working on in order to positively contribute to it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Just so I understand. Just to be clear, it's not a negative thing. I'm not saying that this is like bad. I I just think it's kind of the reality. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think we had a a discussion with Sandy Metz about object-oriented programming. And the way that she described object-oriented languages working was sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure book. And it sounds like what you're saying is that often you can end up, you know, somewhere in the middle of that book and you really need to understand the high-level view of how the story fits together. Is that what you're saying? I think that that's an apt analogy, yes. Okay, excellent. So you described already at least one example of some lower-quality code, code that's a little too clever, but do you have some other examples of what makes for uh, low-quality code? Like, uh, are there common qualities that I can ascribe to low-quality code in the same way that I was able to do that for high-quality code? Is that essentially the question you're asking? Exactly. I mean, imagine, for example, that I am either, you know, a technical person looking to hire somebody on or, you know, a non-technical person that's trying to evaluate whether or not, you know, this, like, technical co-founder that I want to work with is somebody who's actually talented at doing what they're doing. How do I identify Sure. This is context specific to like a given programming language. I don't know if your audience is primarily of one uh, discipline or another within the software engineering field, but taking, for example, like Ruby code or Python code, I would say that code that is low quality lacks documentation. It lacks tests. Uh, it lacks a clear organizational structure. So um, you might have, you know, everything kind of in one big bag as opposed to being modularized and split apart according to function. Uh, you might have code that there isn't good encapsulation in general, even within that organization. So maybe with Sandy and uh, object-oriented design, for example, you discussed the idea that, you know, each collaborating object in your application should have clear and well-defined responsibilities. I know that Sandy talks a lot about that. I love her work. Interestingly, uh, you know, I've become pretty aware in the last couple of years about, you know, the fact that there are different paradigms for writing programs and functional programs. Programming language advocates would say that different things are present uh, in low-quality code than object-oriented programming advocates might say. But for me, I think poorly organized code, code that lacks tests, code that lacks documentation, code that lacks coherent structure, code that overly relies on constructs that are known to be confusing to follow, like very nested conditional code with non-local returns and these kinds of things are are all uh, qualities of of poor code. Like code that is really, really hard to test also is usually code that's poorly written. Could you briefly explain what a test is? Yeah, sure. So a test is a piece of code whose purpose it is to assert a certain property about that other piece of code. So if I had a function in my program uh, whose purpose it was to add two numbers together, right? And I, you know, this is something that I'm implementing on my own for some reason. I might have a function or a method that I call plus, and it takes two parameters, you know, A and B, and it adds them together and returns a result. A test would be a piece of code that I wrote that would assert that for, you know, a variety of inputs that this plus function that I wrote was accurately written. 
And so if that sounds hard and complicated, it is uh, writing good tests and having tests that you write that you feel assert that all of the right properties of your code is something that is really hard to do properly, but is very important. So, I mean, tests are a discipline that programmers have come up with to help them keep the specifications and purpose of the code that they write clear. So that what that tells you is that, you know, knowing precisely what a piece of software does is very challenging because so far you've heard me advocate for code to be, you know, small and modular and simple. Uh, It needs to be documented, needs to be in advance thought of as something that other people are going to consume, and it should be properly tested. And I've also admitted that writing good tests is very challenging. So all of this adds up to the fact that writing software is very complicated, and having an assurance that it does precisely what you want it to do is not an easy thing to achieve. You also brought up a word called modular. Could you explain what that means? Sure. So modular refers to, this is an interesting question because there are kind of a lot of different definitions of that, but colloquially speaking with reference to code, code is modular if you can change one piece of it and it doesn't break another piece of it. So that's one way of explaining it. Just the general idea of modularity can be brought back into the real world with like toy blocks, right? Uh, You can kind of take all these different shapes of toy blocks and piece them all together and uh, build something nice out of them. And you kind of know that the function of those individual blocks like won't, won't change over time. That might not be the best analogy. But code can be written in a way where uh, there is no real separation and organization inside of it. And code that is referred to as modular is code that where you know change in one part of the system does not necessarily entail changes in a lot of other parts of the system. So then could modular code be thought of, like you said, as building blocks what about unmodular code? Is that like, say, a jumble of wires? Like, yeah, or like a you know Play-Doh or something like that, right? Like you kind of have to squeeze the whole thing in one direction or the other, and if you make major changes in one area, then you know it might. Yeah, a, a tangle of wires is a good one. Um, interestingly, like it's okay for the inside of that block to be a tangle of wires, as long as to the person who's using it, the interface is very simple. Those are the kinds of qualities that people who advocate for modular code are looking for in the code that they write and read. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So you mentioned that there were a number of different ways to identify different programming languages as having some poor quality code. You mentioned that there were, you know, different paradigms for doing this. So can you tell me a little bit about what Uh, static analysis is and how that tool can help to identify these things. Sure. So uh, static analysis is uh, a discipline that was invented uh, very quickly after writing computer programs was invented. So the art of static analysis is, uh, again, like similar to testing in a way. Static analysis programs are programs that are designed to analyze and assert properties of other programs without executing them. So a static analysis program can take as an input another program and then will produce as its output some facts about that program. So um, a very simple uh, example of, of static analysis might be a program that tells you 
how many lines of code are in another program? That would probably be on the order of the simplest kind of static analysis that you could do on a program. You could argue that that's not very interesting, and in isolation it's not, but in the context of other analysis that you can do, it it turns out to be useful. So static analysis can identify patterns in code and tell you that patterns exist where that might not be very obvious by just reading it on your own. And additionally, tools like Code Climate that do automated static analysis have the benefit of running all the time, whether you run them or not, so that it can kind of tell you how uh, code change in some other area of the program that you're writing will impact the code that you're working on on a day-to-day basis. So static analysis programs analyze other programs and can tell you things like, through algorithms, you know, this code is very complex, this function is too long, there are potential security issues here, this code does not conform to the style guidelines that your team has set out, and things like that. So you're telling me then that a static analysis tool, and in fact an automated one like Code Climate, is just sitting there reviewing my code every single time that I write it, and letting me know whether or not I have issues? That's right. So similar to how a continuous integration system would work, which is a tool that sits on an external server and runs tests every time you push code, an automated static analysis tool will run every time you commit your code and then will report back to you how the code that you have just changed in that code base will impact the quality and security and style of the code in that code base overall. Okay, so let's say then that we've identified some issues here. And it looks like I have some bad code. I mean, let's say worst case scenario, I've just found out about code climate. I'm going ahead and pushing up my Rails application and, you know, I end up with a really poor score. Do I have to start all over again? That's a great question. Uh, No, you don't. And what we like to say is if you're just seeing code climate for the first time, what we recommend is you uh, upload your repo Uh, see what the results are, maybe poke around a little bit, and then kind of try to forget about it for like four or five days. Then come back and see what the tool has recorded over the course of your first four or five days of use, and then try to correlate your experience with what the tool says. So the idea is not that Code Climate is kind of like a list of things that you must fix, right? The idea is that teams of developers that use automated static analysis tools will end up producing higher quality code because they they sort of can't ignore the impact that the code that they're pushing has on that code base over time because the tool doesn't let them. So it might help you out on like if you have a bug squash day or you have to fix, you know you have to change some area of the code in the future so you want to go and kind of clean some things up. It's very useful for that. But the biggest, the most useful aspect of it, uh, which is sort of easy to overlook, is the idea that we are, the tool is designed to keep you in touch with how things are changing over time. So a lot of static analysis tools that individuals run on the command line or in their IDE, that is good to do, and you should do that, but you don't get the benefit of being notified when other people push code that changes areas of code that you're interested in, and you also don't have the benefit of uh, sort of seeing that in a way that is in context with the rest of the code that you're writing. 
because while static analysis is very useful, it's automated, right? So it's not meant to be a replacement for another human being looking at your code. Uh, it's meant to augment that. So, you know, if you run the same static analysis program against your code every time you open it in your text editor, uh, it might warn you over and over again about the same four or five issues that you have. Maybe you don't care about them. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you don't have time to fix them, things like that. But if you use a tool like ours that is uh, sort of trending and over time based, what you get to see is how did the code that I just committed impact the file that I changed? So instead of telling me you have four issues, it will tell me now you have introduced an issue or you have fixed an issue or something like that. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm going to throw out a couple of facts that I just happen to know about Code Climate. So let's say, for example, that I end up, you know, with a, a GPA of like 2.0, which is a way that Code Climate ends up scoring the overall project. And I've got all these files that are F scores, you know, that they are really, really complex and, you know, need to be broken down in some way. What do I do in a situation like that where you know, I still have customers that I need to work with who are demanding features that get built, and I don't have time to just drop everything and improve what it is that I've got. Is there a way for me to prioritize these things? That's a great question. I think that you should prioritize your changes based on your domain expertise. So a thing that I often tell customers and potential customers is that, you know, the goal is not to have a 4.0 in your code base. The goal is to not make that worse over time. The goal is to make it better over time or to have it stay the same. Because if you're adding code and your GPA is staying the same, you're actually kind of improving things. So all of this has to be a part of a larger risk-reward calculation that you're willing to make every time you sit in front of your computer to make changes to your code base, right? If you're on a deadline and you know that what you're doing is complex and you don't have time to think through it to find a more elegant solution, then we'll simply remind you that that's the choice that you made when you push that code. I think if you are in a situation where there's a deadline, uh, you have code that's very complex, you have code that's not documented and code that is not tested, uh, you should be prepared for that code to break in some way or another when you change it. So we try to provide a workflow tool that will help you and your team you know, stay disciplined about the code that you change in your code base. And over time, you sort of can't afford to not make uh, some of these changes because you'll start to see that uh, it will be harder and harder for you to make changes in certain areas of the code base. And, you know, that doesn't usually blow up in a small way. It tends to blow up uh, in a big way. So I'm fully capable, you know, I I fully acknowledge that that will happen. This is not a list of things that you need to change immediately. Um, In terms of prioritizing, I would prioritize based on your business needs. Um, I would work on the areas of the code that you know change a lot, and we actually help inform you of that. We have a graph that we call churn versus quality on our trends page that will show you a scatter plot of files that are based on uh, how often the code changed against its quality. So code that is in that upper right-hand quadrant of low quality and changes a lot is code that's very risky. So we have a variety of ways through allowing you to explore the data that we provide to sort of help guide your uh, refactoring or changing to the code. Okay, perfect. And I think a lot of the business people here who are frustrated listening to software developers uh, are commending you for talking about the business needs. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the software complexity is real. Developers do have uh, affinity for making things simple and neat, but as long as you as a business person are willing to explain uh, the business motivations behind changes that need to be made to a developer uh, and you have a healthy working relationship, then there's really no reason why that back and forth give shouldn't be a part of your relationship. I actually have a lot to say about developers uh, and their alienation from the business side of software companies and all that kind of stuff. But the reality of it is it's often business pressure Part, you know, external pressures like, uh, you know, the classic, the salesperson sold a feature we don't have yet thing, or the business development person uh, was convinced by an external partner that, you know, we can or cannot do this other thing. And, you know, then the business person comes in and says, oh, this should be simple, but, you know, they don't really know what's simple or not. And that, and that causes a lot of problems. Right. Or, or by the way, guys, we've, uh, scheduled our PR release date for such and such date and we can't move it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so we don't lean, you know, we are a tool that's written by developers for developers. So we haven't yet kind of leaned into this like management insight component of what we provide, but we do feel that our tool does give visibility to organizations into something that is typically considered opaque, which is what our developers actually spending their time doing. And we found that it can be a really useful thing for, uh, you know, a development manager, VP of engineering, senior developer to say, Hey, you know, Susie businesswoman, um, why don't you check out, uh, you know, this graph that shows that, you know, every time, you know, we have a one day's notice to make a giant feature improvement that our code quality dips by this amount, you know, and I know that that's not going to be enough necessarily for us to just stop doing things one way and start doing them another, but it does give uh, developers and development managers a tool to communicate something that's actually quite difficult to, to explain. Right. You can at least let a little sunshine in. Exactly. You mentioned earlier, um, you touched upon two interesting things, uh, churn and complexity. And you also talked about how code with high churn and complexity is uh, the candidate. I think in your in code climate, they're called hotspots. Can you explain what those are and why those are hotspots? Sure. So uh, hotspots in code climate are just r- files that have really bad quality problems that have changed recently. And the reason why they're hotspots is because that's a sort of a nuanced question. I'll try to give you a, what I think is a very good example. Uh, oftentimes, you know, libraries or applications that people upload to code climate will have some super complex piece of code in it, but that code will never change right? Um, Maybe it was introduced once. To get kind of technical, it could be like some generated code, right? It could be a giant data structure dictionary thing that you need stored in your your code, whatever it is, right? There's a piece of code. It's there. It's never going to change. The interface to it is narrow, meaning, you know, only one or two areas in the other, in the code base that it's a part of, uh, we'll call it. And you don't really need to change it. 
right? Like you just don't need to, you might like be using some external piece of code or it might be that legacy code that the first developer wrote and it kind of does this one thing and people don't really understand exactly how it works and sure it would be better if someone really understood it, but in reality of business, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't really need to change it just because we say it's complex. Oh, so we don't recommend that you go in and poke at that because you don't really need to. But areas of the code base that change a lot and that are very complex are error prone because if you believe that code that is more complicated is harder to change and you can make mistakes more easily when you have code that's very complex, then you would want to avoid you would want to avoid having code that is super complex that is changing all the time. Because anytime someone's changing it, it's kind of a risky behavior. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So Code Climate offers a, it offers a feature called test coverage. Could you explain what that is and how that relates to refactoring code? Sure. So uh, we, have, um, we maintain open source test reporting libraries for Ruby, JavaScript, and PHP. And what those libraries do is when you run your tests, uh, it reports the results of those tests to Code Climate. And we can display the test coverage of your uh, code alongside the quality that we calculate. So test coverage refers to, in your code, how much of the code is actually tested when the tests uh, are run. And that might seem like kind of a magical thing to calculate, but it's actually relatively straightforward. Most major test runners for the popular programming languages kind of give this to you for free. So it will tell you, it's a very useful thing. If you have a method that's pretty complicated and it, you know, it's 10 or 11 lines of code long, it's a nice thing to see which lines were exercised, it's called, or executed during tests so that you can say, oh, that, that, you know, that logical branch wasn't followed in that test. I need to write another test to hit that area. The way that test coverage fits into refactoring is that Code that is complicated but is well-tested is a very good candidate to change because you know that if you change it toward the end of like making it simpler or easier to understand, then you have some external specification that you can run to make sure that the behavior of that code has not changed. So that does more for you than like documentation will do. Okay, so you mentioned that this code coverage tool will end up looking into wherever it is that these lines of code have been executed. But a common question that I see come up, or a misunderstanding at least, is that this doesn't necessarily mean that every different permutation of that code has run. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. It is a decent heuristic for determining you know, how complete your tests are, but it, it's not as complete as all that. I, I think what you said is correct, yeah. So just be, so in other words, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at, answer the question that you asked. I think you're, one thing that I think you might be getting at, which is definitely true, is that you could have tests that exercise, you know, each line of code in your application, but it doesn't mean that they're like good or well-written tests, right? Like test coverage is a measure of how good your tests are, but it's not the only measure. It should never be used as the only measure for how complete and how uh, good your test coverage is. Okay, and so, you know, I think what, you know, I want to try and understand too is uh, there's this concept of unit tests, right? And it sounds like what you're saying is that and a unit test is you know, a test that identifies one of these little modules of code that you discussed earlier and, you know, reaches into that and makes sure that that little module is working in multiple different ways. So 
if the code is shown to have executed throughout the test that I'm working, that doesn't necessarily mean that in, you know, my email signup form that I've tested that multiple versions of email addresses work. Is that right? So it's just testing that, you know, that email signup form worked in one variation of it. Uh, right. I mean, there are different levels of tests or tests have different kind of granularity, so to, so to speak, when it comes to the functionality that they're trying to test. Uh, a good unit test tests only one very specific behavior of a function, right? And you're right in that if it's a very simple function that I'm testing and I write a test, if it's a very simple function that like an email validation function is a very interesting kind of thing to test because there are lots of different so-called degenerate cases or, you know, weirdly malformed email addresses that your uh, function might not test for properly. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question properly, but what I'm getting at is that you need more than unit tests, right? Unit tests test very specific behavior and you, you kind of need a lot of them, right? Like if there are 30 different acceptable email formats then you should probably have at least 30 tests that test each of those individual ones. So what might happen is that you might write tests that only test four or five and then still have complete test coverage for that function, but you haven't like completely specified what that function does until you've written tests that exercise that for all the given behaviors. And then you need tests that kind of put the different objects together and test just the collaboration between those tests. And those are sometimes called uh, integration tests. Okay, perfect. There's an interesting technique mentioned on the Code Climate blog called mob refactoring. Uh, could sure. you briefly explain what that is? Um, sure. So the idea of mob refactoring is to... Uh, take code review out of the kind of isolated one-on-one setup that it normally has. So you mob refactor by taking a piece of code uh, that someone is proposing a change to and putting it up on a whiteboard with a group of people that understand the code so that you can kind of discuss it together and learn from each other. Okay, so is this, I mean, we're a completely remote team ourselves. Is this possible to do remotely? Yeah, you can screen share and hang out with five people and kind of all get together and discuss that code, take turns, give impressions, maybe take some notes before you start talking with each other so that you make sure that, you know, you're not unduly influenced by someone else's opinion and things like that. I think the idea behind it was to just kind of get some fresh eyes on the code and get out of the rut of kind of doing the same things the same way over and over again. Okay, makes perfect sense. So, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Tell us, where can we keep up with you online? Uh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MRB underscore BK. Follow the Code Climate Twitter. I run that account and tweet lots of interesting articles and links and whatnot there. That's at Code Climate. And you can uh, check out our open source stuff on GitHub and try Code Climate out at CodeClimate.com. I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, and I mean, we are big, big fans of Code Climate, and every single client we have is continuing to use it on their own account. So, <laughs> fantastic! I love to hear that, and uh, some really exciting things are uh, coming up soon. We just released uh, Python support for the product, uh, and we're really going to be spending the next, uh, the rest of this year, uh, 
doing as best we can and keeping it fresh and interesting for you. And, uh, and for, we're free for open source, so try us out on your open source libraries. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.